Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, Senior Director at CFGI. This is the program where we dig deeper to understand what really matters most in business. And today, I'm really excited to have a fun and interesting conversation. Uh, the way I would characterize it is when a CPA meets CSI. Can't take credit for that. My guest, Frank Pina here, the Managing Director at the Mercadian Group, actually helped coin that expression. Frank, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate you having me. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I uh, just want to just set the frame first. Why don't you just tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and then uh, we'll jump into the good stuff. Sure. I describe myself as a forensic accountant and dispute consultant, uh, tasked with helping individuals and corporations manage business controversy. So um, as managing director of the Mercadian Group, I sort of specialize in three things, uh, forensic investigations, um, economic damage assessments, as well as bankruptcy and insolvency matters. Uh, so what I mean by that is uh, when a client calls me, generally they're not calling me to share good news. Yeah. Um, something in their life changed and they need help. So generally having an ascent, a sense of urgency and reacting quickly is what wins the day with respect to making my clients happy and letting them know how I can help them. Um, in terms of forensic investigations, normally what I do is I get engaged by either general counsel of a company, uh, a board of directors or a regulatory body, and sometimes external law firms who represent either of those two parties to help them assess uh, certain allegations, whether they be whistleblower related, employee dishonesty, vendor fraud, you name it. Generally speaking, these issues have an economic impact, and my investigative skills coupled with my CPA experience tends to be mm -hmm. helpful in that regard. Um, the other area that I tend to work a lot in is in the economic damages assessment area, where two parties are fighting it out over one reason or another. Um, think of a a dispute over a breach of contract type claim where plaintiff sues defendant over failing to fulfill a duty, so to speak. Generally speaking, you're not suing for any other reason other than a monetary issue. And someone like me who can uh, evaluate the situation, assess the numbers, uh, and, and render an opinion as to what the economic is or economic damage is or isn't, uh, tends to really help Mm -hmm. Courts and triers of fact, you know, make decisions as to who's right and where liability sits. Yeah. Um, the last area I'll just touch upon is the bankruptcy and insolvency area, which is where I spend a lot of time helping Chapter 11 trustees uh, navigate their role um, through the bankruptcy court process, whether it be investigating debtors in possession or just providing financial advice uh, to help companies reorganize and get out of bankruptcy. These are sort of the areas I tend to spend most of my time in. Yeah. Are, are there any particular fact patterns that are consistent across these different things when you think about you know fraud and, and people trying to to scam whether it's investors or consumers so I, w I would say, you know, there's really three elements present when a fraud occurs, in my experience, and you know, I think a lot, my, a lot of folks in my profession would tend to agree. Um, the first element is pressure, whether it's real or perceived. Generally speaking, uh, you know, a fraudster identifies a pressure. Usually, it's financial in nature, whether it be um, pressure to uh, generate certain revenue within a short time frame, whether it's a gambling problem or new medical expenses that they're forced with paying. So now they need to come up with money quickly. Um, due to pressure they experience. So that's sort of element number one. Uh, the other common element I, I see is there's an opportunity. So uh, generally speaking, the opportunity manifests itself in, a, in an internal control weakness or the ability to override controls. So once a pressure exists and then the 
potential fraudster identifies an opportunity to perpetrate a fraud, um, the only thing they need to really do to move that process forward is to rationalize it, which is really the third element. So you have yeah. pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. And in my profession, that's really the, the elements of what's known as the fraud triangle. It's something that we're taught, and it turns out to be true in most cases. But I would also tell you that I've come across a lot of fraudsters in my life, having interviewed them, uh, people who have done some very interesting things. And oftentimes, you know, there's just a certain percentage of the population that's up to no good. Yeah. There's, there's not a pressure necessarily. It's just somebody's there to benefit um, at someone else's detriment, and, and they see the opportunity and figure out a way to rationalize it. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that rationalization of the psychology in a little bit. I'm also going to put you on the spot and ask you if you have a favorite fraudster. So I'll let you marinate on that for a minute. But what I wanted to just talk about real quickly here is when you think about types of fraud, right, this is nothing new. Um, fraud's been around forever, whether it's business scamming, Internet scamming, Ponzi schemes. Um, as I mentioned to you before we went on the air, two things that were particularly intriguing to me were things like the Fire Festival and Theranos. Both got a lot of publicity, um, documentaries made about them. Let's jump into the psychology, right? How, how do people like you know, the CEO of Theranos or the, the leaders of the Fire Festival? How, how do they rationalize this whole idea of this perpetrating of the fraud? Well, you know, some people think that um, they deserve it. So one of, the, one of the things I come across a lot is I've worked so hard. Other people have gotten to where they are by doing this. So I'm going to do it too. Or... It's a victimless crime. It, at the end of the day, it's not murder. It's nothing um, blue collar to the point where you're actually physically harming someone. So they feel like I can rationalize my behavior because the detriment I'm causing is economic in nature. Mm -hmm. It's not physical. And a lot of times, too, I find fraudsters, especially the, the sophisticated ones, to be um, very professional. They're, they're unassuming. They're unsuspecting. And they have a lot of gravitas in a particular industry. And in order to perpetuate the lifestyle and perpetuate the um, sort of the um, reputation that they build over time, sometimes it just can't be done in the normal course and they have to get creative and oftentimes creativity leads to criminal behavior. Yeah, so unfortunately they don't channel it for good, they channel it for evil, right? right. Gotcha, okay. So you talked about economic damages. How does one go about determining what the ultimate damages are? So economic damages are often very hard to prove with certainty because a lot of what you have to do as an economic damages expert is you have to rely on historical financial information uh, and you usually look three to five years backwards to determine what the future might look like for someone who's claiming they had been damaged. Because if you, if you think about a situation where uh, two parties are fighting over um, lost profits, for example, Party A allegedly uh, harmed Party B, and Party B is trying to recover lost profits. Um, as a result of that, Party B is not going to just arbitrarily be able to come up with a number and say, I would have lost this amount, therefore you should pay. Party B has to really look at two things, what they did historically and what they projected to do over what ends up becoming the lost period yep. to determine if, in fact, um, they have a lost profit. What the opposing party is likely to do is say, okay, you may have produced historical financials that sort of support your economic damage assessment, or you may have produced projections that predated your alleged loss, and therefore all of that seems to make sense hypothetically, but they'll try and establish that outside influences would have negatively impacted that organization's ability to fulfill, to fulfill on those projections and kind of make good on what they suspect it would happen over time. So... What you really do for, as, as an accounting expert, you look at, uh, you identify revenue, 
and you identify cost, and essentially what revenue would have been generated but for the alleged harmful act, and then you factor in uh, what costs you might have saved as a result of not being able to generate that revenue, and you arrive at a lost profits number. And in, in my space, uh, those calculations have to be done to a reasonable degree of professional certainty. And as you can imagine, there's some subjectivity as to what that means. And, and just having uh, experience and looking at the right records really help you win the day there. But you also want to talk to people. You don't want to forget the fact that at the end of the day, you know, books and records only get you so far. And, and talking to people who create those projections you know, really make a difference as well. Yeah, and look, in my world, in valuation consulting, whether it's valuing a business or valuing intellectual property assets, it's a risk-adjusted net present value analysis, similar to what you just described, but you've got some more nuances there from a legal perspective. So I get it, and I think the audience does too. You did a really good job in explaining that. Um, you touched on the idea of you need to talk to people too. It's not just about the data. Why don't you elaborate on that? I know you've got some thoughts there. Yeah, so the way I view things, you know, if you're talking about fraud, at the end of the day, books and records don't commit fraud. People do, right? Fraud, by definition, is intentional. Uh, so, so understanding that closing the gap on where the data leaves things to be desired can really only be obtained through talking to people. And conducting forensic interviews is something that I, I do frequently in almost every investigation or litigation support assignment. The other thing I tend to do very often is review emails. I believe emails are more or less like modern day wiretaps and people put everything and anything in emails. So before I you know, necessarily render an, um, an investigation complete, I review emails. That might get me to where I'm going. It might help me focus on my allegations, but you'd be surprised what other interesting things you find out about people by reviewing their emails. And most of the time, I'm working with the company behind the scenes, and oftentimes the targets of my investigation aren't even aware that I'm doing it. So if you can imagine having uh, information from an email to then present during a forensic interview, you know, really helps people understand that you know the answers to most of your questions. You're there to confirm what you know and maybe find other information with probative value that can take you to another level but there's a real big people aspect to it and I would encourage anybody who's looking to get into this field to um, really get out from behind the screen and, and talk to people it's critical yeah so when you get to that spot where you, it's clear that you have something on them you've got some documented evidence in an email do they typically fold and say oh, they got me or are they continuing to perpetuate this ruse of uh, the fraud so I would say it depends on the sophistication of the fraudster. I can tell you, in my opinion, in my profession, there's no greater feeling than being able to obtain a confession without a gun or a badge. And I have neither a gun nor a badge. I'm a civilian. I'm a, I'm a bean counter, right? And, and I, I believe that I use a blue-collar approach to solving white-collar problems and you know, developing a rapport with people. You'd be surprised how many times I actually get a confession. But oftentimes my MO is to talk to people and let them lie to me. I'll let them lie to me until we're both blue in the face. And then I will show them the document you just described, whereas I have something in evidence that could suggest they're not being truthful. And when I slide that in front of them and actually show them what I know, you'd be surprised how quickly they don't have an answer for me and how quickly their confession starts to unravel. Gotcha. So how can people contact you, Frank, if they want to learn more about you or how to work with you? So I'm on LinkedIn uh, at, as Frank Pina, uh, as Managing Director of Mercadian. My email address is fpina at mercadian.com. Uh, or uh, feel free to reach out to me by telephone at 609-689-2319. Good stuff. And that's a great spot to take a quick commercial break, Frank. So we're going to continue this conversation in just a couple of moments here. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Behind the Numbers. 
today's show is sponsored by Dr. Jacqueline. Take charge of your life personally, financially, and professionally. Visit drjacqueline.com to book an appointment today. Hey everybody, my name is Ralph Graves Jr. Hey everyone, welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're having a great conversation with Frank Pina, Managing Director at Mercadian Group. Um, Frank, in the first segment, you, um, I told you I was going to put you on the spot and ask you about a favorite fraudster, because you've interviewed so many people throughout your career. Uh, during this very quick commercial break, I hope you had a chance to think about it, because I want to ask you, do you have a favorite fraudster? I do, Dave, and uh, my favorite fraudster is actually a fraudster I never met. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, I was engaged a few years back by a large financial institution through their general counsel's office to help them understand uh, what they deem to be irregular accounting practices. Um, there's been some turnover in a particular group, and as a result, they couldn't really unwind some reconciling items. So I was brought in, not really understanding what I was there to do, but um, do what I could to help the client get where they wanted to go. And in just a few short days, I unraveled what ended up being almost a three-decade-long fraud. Three decades. Uh, almost. Almost wow. three decades long. And it was, in my opinion, one of the most brilliant schemes I've ever seen because most fraudsters tend to get caught, and usually it's because they get greedy. Um, greed tends to be the downfall of fraudsters. It tends to be what catches the attention of people who are looking. In this particular case, uh, while the fraud was perpetrated for a very long time, there was no signs of extreme greed to, to the point where it rose to the level of suspicion. So I'm inside this financial institution, and uh, the particular uh, division I'm interested in, in investigating further is the credit card division. And one of the things I come across when trying to reconcile books and records is the fact that uh, one long-term employee who had recently passed away uh, had a credit card as a customer of this financial institution. And from since the mid-80s, this person had one of those no-frills credit cards. Not, you're not getting points for spending habits. You're not getting mileage. The limit was $5,000, and it remained that way for all these years. And what she would do over the course of what ended up being almost a 30-year period of time, she would spend the credit card just like you or I. But instead of you or I uh, writing a check to our credit card company to pay down the balance on a monthly basis, she kept access to an antiquated system on her desk that no one else was aware of, um, that stayed live through a number of mergers and acquisitions that tended to happen over the the financial institutions industry over time, and she would just unilaterally, without approval, log into this system and create manual adjustments, which showed up as payments on her statement. So spending wow. every month and then manually adjusting those amounts away, month after month, year after year, not just spending, but also cash advances, etc. She managed to live a very uh, fabulous lifestyle on the financial institution's dime. And it wasn't until she passed away that all of this came to light when someone who took on her responsibilities um, managed to uncover some of these discrepancies. So, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have met a number of fraudsters and have had the ability to question them. And while I had a lot of evidence to suggest she did exactly what I suggested, I never had a chance to confront her. And, you know, to, to a large extent, uh, the bank was made totally whole through an employee dishonesty insurance policy. And the investigation was so robust and so supported by our efforts that the insurance company wrote a check and also paid the, uh, the bank or reimbursed the bank for 
the cost they paid me to investigate. So it ended up being a real win for the bank and a real eye-opening experience for me, um, just to have it, just having been down that path and having never met my former <laughs> fraudster. That's a great story. And a couple of things come to mind, because you, you mentioned that a lot of times people get caught because they're greedy. And in this particular instance, maybe it wasn't so much greed, keeping it at low dollar amounts, relatively speaking, just fly under the radar, but consistently, which leads to the question, so what can companies do? I mean, here, here's a situation where for 30 years they, they didn't detect anything. Talk to our audience and, and tell them what can they do in their businesses now to be mindful and aware of these things and maybe detect fraud. So one of the things I encourage folks to consider is a proactive fraud risk assessment. Uh, in almost all cases, I'm brought in in a reactive way. A fraud or allegations of misconduct or employee dishonesty or vendor abuse seems to surface, but it's a little too late. If you're calling me after the fact, chances are I'm going to find fraud to such a magnitude that you're going to wish that maybe you spent a little bit of money proactively up front to prevent it rather than spend it on the back end trying to detect it and quantify it. So to answer your question, Dave, proactive fraud risk assessments, whether it's something you can have your internal audit folks do or some outside expert or forensic investor later like myself come in and do, I think um, you can really make a real impact your organization in that way. The other simple thing that doesn't require a whole lot of money is just pay attention to what I'll call segregation of duties. Just make sure you don't have the same person, um, you know, opening the mail, depositing the checks, and reconciling the, the bank statements. Yeah, that's um, a lot of control. It, it's it, giving one person too much control could create um, the opportunity, as we talked about. Yeah. And certainly, if there's a pressure, now the opportunity manifests it. And certainly, people can figure out a way to rationalize, especially if that fraudster is someone who's not quite management or, or executive level. They might be given um, a job responsibility that they think they should be paid more to do, and they might just help themselves to the pot if uh, they feel like they're underpaid or, or some other uh, you know, reason to that extent. That's good advice. How can folks who are watching and listening learn more about you, Frank? How can they contact you? So I have a website, uh, www.mercadian.com. That's M-E-R-C-A-D-I-E-N. I also have a LinkedIn page and profile to give you an idea and a flavor for some of the work I perform and how I help clients. Um, feel free to email me or contact me by phone. I'd love to chat with you more about you know, what it is you're experiencing and how I might help. My email address is fpina at mercadian.com or 609-689-2319 by telephone. Thanks, Frank. So in the course of this conversation, you've alluded to a lot of skills and experience that you've developed, obviously, over the years. If you were hiring for um, you know, a, an apprentice, if you are, someone to join your team, what are the most important things that you look for? So for me, it's really finding that unique blend of street smarts and school smarts. Uh, because a lot of times, uh, the most highly educated individuals uh, may miss what's right in front of them. So there's an element of common sense that I think every good fraud investigator has to have. And it's, it's just understanding, again, that it's not just about sitting behind the screen and crunching the numbers and analyzing the data. Most folks in my space are CPAs, accountants. We love the data. We can't help ourselves. So it's sometimes out of our comfort zone to want to do something like this where we're interacting, particularly on camera. So getting out from behind the screen, interacting with people, someone who's not uh, afraid to you know, be in the marketplace, be vulnerable, and, and really try and connect on a personal level, uh, along with the, the, just the 
um, the foresight to kind of understand that technology is going to be a critical component of our business. So someone who's adaptable and someone who's innovative would also be two other quality qualities I would look for in someone who I would say uh, could be an intern or someone starting out in this business. Yeah, interesting. We have about three minutes to go. Uh, time goes very quickly here. And before we went on the air, you mentioned something to me that's kind of a, a light bulb that I was aware of, but aha, when you mention it, that a lot of times when we see and hear about these fraud cases that get all the publicity, doesn't necessarily mean that they end out in a negative way. Sometimes the, the feds don't get it right. Well, why don't you speak to that a little bit? Maybe you've got a story that you can share. Sure. So I think, you know, for, for the most part, people wake up every day and, and do the best they can with the information they have at the time. Well, through my career, one of the things I found is, you know, just because the government comes knocking doesn't always make their uh, accusations 100 percent correct. Um, people do get it wrong or there's always another side to a story. Again, if you're only looking at the data and not talking to people, you may fail to realize there's another aspect that uh, doesn't make it into the government's complaint, so to speak. Um, to, to give you an example of, of one that you know did make the news, and uh, it's one that I worked on for a period of time, um, former Mayor Frank Rizzo, uh, his son-in-law, daughter, and grandson were um, indicted a few years back on 20-plus federal crimes, mainly involving gambling and, and, and sports betting and things of that nature. Um, you know, one of the things that happened after a raid ensued at their Montgomery County, their Montgomery County PA mansion. Uh, their, their lawn was dug up and millions of dollars in cash were, was found by federal agents buried in PVC pipes in their garden. Yeah, that so doesn't look good. No, it, it doesn't <laughs> look good. And, and frankly, you know, um, there, there's a lot that went into the government's investigation that, that led to the warrants, et cetera. So what was interesting about that case was, you know, what ended up happening was all of their assets were seized, brokerage accounts, cash in the bank, uh, property, safe deposit box contents, as well as the cash in the yard, right? So um, when I got a call from defense counsel, my job was, was simple. As an independent accounting expert, my job uh, wasn't to advocate for the defendants. It was to conduct an independent investigation that basically was to determine what money was uh, obtained legitimately through legitimate means and what funds may have been from ill-gotten activities. And after my investigation, uh, through working with defense counsel and other experts, um, the case years later ended up settling. And what happened, uh, one of the defendants was excused from the case and significant millions of dollars was actually returned to this family that were seized through um, the government investigation initially. And those monies may not have been returned to the family if uh, someone like me didn't get involved from an independent financial perspective and really determine what was potentially ill-gotten versus what was legitimately in place before the government's investigation ensued. Wow. Good stuff. And I think on that note, Frank, we've got to wrap this up. Dave, it's been so, a pleasure. No, nah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, CPA meets CSI. Um, doesn't feel like a business conversation. just feels like we had a, a nice little chat about some fun stuff that's in the news. And hopefully uh, you at home watching and listening uh, got as much uh, enjoyment out of this as I did. Uh, until we meet again, please, if you're watching and listening, uh, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're looking at it or listening to so that you stay in contact with us and you're aware of uh, all the future episodes. Till next time on Behind the Numbers, I'm Dave Bookbinder. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.